I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter number 11 is where we're going to be uh, for just a little bit today. Hebrews chapter number 11. The subject of this chapter is faith. And it begins by sort of defining faith. It says in verse number 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So when we go to God in faith, we just don't go with empty hope. No, there's, there, there, there is, is substance and there is evidence. And, and when we pray, we have God's Word and God's character upon which to base our faith and to frame our prayers. And so it's not just that we're shooting in the dark hoping somehow to hit a target. That's not it at all. We... We know who we're praying to. We know what He's able to do. And so when we come to God, we, we, we come with faith. And that faith is the substance. It's the thing that gives us hope for what we're asking. And then it's the evidence of things not seen. Have you ever gotten up and you knew God had answered you? It's the evidence within our heart. It's like ordering a car, and the car hasn't yet been delivered, but you've got the title deed that you take home. And they tell you on the 30th of the month, your car will be delivered, okay? So I got the title deed. Or here's something that'll fit you better. Have you ever ordered something from Amazon? Okay. And it's coming in the mail, and it'll arrive two days later, and it's not there yet, but you've got the receipt in your hand that you print off, and you know, okay, it's not here yet, but I've got the receipt. When we pray to God, when we pray to God, we have the evidence of our prayers. We have asked God, we have gone to the God that's able, and we take that away and, and carry it with us. And so then he begins to give illustrations of faith. We find in, in uh, verse number 4, he talks about Abel. Verse number 5, he talks about Enoch. Verse number 7, he talks about Noah. Then verse number 8, he begins to talk about Abraham and Sarah and down through verse 19. And verse 20 and 21, he's talking about Isaac and Jacob. Verse 22, he talks about Joseph. Verse number 23, he begins to discuss Moses and the leadership that Moses had. And then Joshua and Israel as they marched around the walls of Jericho. Verse 30. Verse 31, we run into Rahab the harlot. And then, and then in verse 32, he begins to summarize things. He's going to give us a list in just a little bit of people whose names we do not know. Some did great things for God and some had horrible things done to them, but they both did the things and endured the things by this subject of faith. But before he gets into that, he does name a handful of people, verse 32, and he, he sort of summarizes the list that he's already given, and he says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Let's pray. Father, help us. Give us, dear God, what we have need of in this service. Speak to our hearts and have your way and will in our lives, and we'll give you the praise and the glory for everything you do. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. 
Today is going to be the twelfth and final message in the life of Samson. What I thought was just a one-and-done message three months ago turned into a series that's lasted this entire time. I hope that as we end this series that, that you've learned uh, some things that would help you, but honestly, I hope that you've learned more about yourself than you have about Samson. Okay. I, hope, I hope you've picked some things up about your life and that you've been able to identify yourself as God dealt with us through these messages. I know that it certainly has helped me. Once Samson steps onto the scene, the narrative of his life takes up more space in the Bible than any of the other judges. Four chapters are given uh, to, to the birth of Samson and then his life and up until his death. And so as, as we first entered the study of the world's all-time strongest man, he appeared to be a bit of a mixture between Marvel comic book character and, and, um, and, and, and Bible hero. And we find ourselves waiting with bated breath on this man, this strong, iconic individual to step up to the middle of everything that he's been called to do and assume the leadership that God intended for him. But instead of assuming that, instead of being who God called him to be, Samson chooses to live his life out as a Lone Ranger. And over the weeks, these last three months, these 12 messages over these weeks as we've studied his life he's developed quite a rap sheet he balked at his calling he resisted the spirits moving in his life more than once he violated his Nazarite vow on every single count he rejected his parents counsel with insolence he gambled and then murdered 30 men to pay his debt <coughs> excuse me he was angry he was self-absorbed, he was sullen, he loved the world life, he slept with harlots, he did not value his God-given gift, and instead he used that same gift for selfish, self-serving purposes. And so, as we close out chapter 16 of the book of Judges, and we walk away from that scene, he lies there, broken and buried, more beneath the ruins of his own ambition than those of Dagon's temple. And we walk away with sadness, sadness over what could have been, sadness over what should have been. And we're indelibly, indelibly impressed by his flaws and by his failures. But the reality is that the narrative of Samson's life doesn't remain buried in that family grave, nor does it remain confined to the four chapters that were given him in the book of Judges that we've observed over these past few months. So in Hebrews chapter 11, as we begin to, as we begin to walk through the, the, the hall of faith, as it's called, we picture ourselves walking down the corridors of this place and and we find the names, and if you would imagine with me the, the bust, the bronze bust of some of the great iconic figures of the Bible, 
sitting there and and we approach people that are amazing people. There's there's Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and of course there is the great lawgiver himself, Moses. As we stand looking at them, our minds cannot help but remember <coughs> the things that they are most noted for in the scripture. But then all of a sudden we run face into verse 32. Hebrews 11, verse 32, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson. I mean, really? You, you read that and, and you want to say, wait a minute. And if I could use some South Georgia vernacular, we would say, what in the flying cat hair is he doing there? Apology to those of you with cats. I mean, what is he doing here? I mean, come on, are you kidding me? What is it, listen, what in the world could possibly so recommend this guy that as we read the iconic names of the characters throughout Bible history that we bump into a bronze bust of Samson in the hall of faith. It's almost like it's a joke. And as I said on the Facebook post the other day, did he sneak in when somebody wasn't looking? Okay. Did he win a lotto ticket that gave him a slot here? I don't know. I mean, how, do, how did he get here? What's he doing here? Of all the people whose names I read... Samson and maybe the few that are crowded around him, you would not think would be there, would you? Book of Joshua. There's a harlot. Her name is Rahab. She's going to be in the hall of faith, really? Jephthah? Are you kidding me? Talk about a guy that's missing a few bolts up top. He makes the dumbest vow the world has ever known. And either cost his daughter her future or her life. There's differing of opinions there. So, I mean, it's a strange section we find here. Now, let me give you some reasons why I think Samson's here. First of all, because he stood out amongst the apathetic many. Okay? Everybody with me? How many of you are with me right now? You're staring at me like, what's wrong with this guy? No, stay with me, okay? He stood out among the apathetic memory. How many of you remember in the beginning we talked about the seven cycles of sin? Okay? Everybody remember? So, so, <clears throat> so here's, here's how it goes. The people sin. When they sin, an oppressor comes because the hand of God is removed. So an oppressor comes, okay? The people endure the oppression. Third of all, they cry out to God for a deliverer. Fourth of all, God sends the deliverer to deliver them. Unfortunately, they don't remember well, so the cycle repeats itself. People sin, oppressor, deliverer, blessing. Okay? So, so that's, that's what happens. The people sin, okay? An oppressor comes, they call out to God. God sends a deliverer, and they're blessed. That's the cycle. Now look at me. With every judge, 
in the book of Judges that we're told about, every single time they cry out because they're oppressed, they cry out for help, except one exception, and that's here. For 40 years, the children of Israel were oppressed by the Philistines. They never cried out for help. Every other instance, every other judge, they called out. They needed help. Uh, I'm talking about the seven cycles. Every of those seven cycles, every single time, help! Help! And God sent help. But now, in this cycle, they don't call out for help. They don't ask God for a deliverer. For 40 years, they're suffering, and yet there's not one complaint there's not one tear of agony. There's not one single plea for deliverance. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you this, that they had become content with the subservient role of having Philistines rule over them, having them lord over their life. You know what they were doing? They were coexisting with the enemy. You know what they were doing? They were pacifists. You know what they were doing? They were taking the easy road. They said, we're not going to bug this. We're not going to fight it. We're not, listen, we're, we're just going to settle in. This is who we are. We're nothing but subservient people that will bow down to the world. Nobody cried for help. And so God said, my people are used to this. They're not calling. It's been 40 years. I haven't heard a word. It's been 40 years. Nobody's asked for help. It's been 40 years. Nobody's tired of oppression. It's been 40 years, and they're just living side by side with the enemy. And so God said, I'm going to send Samson. <coughs> do, you remember, do you remember when Samson was up on the hill? All right, go with me to, go with me to chapter 15. Okay. Samson has been a thorn in the side of the Philistines. Okay? Now nobody else is doing anything. Now look at look at look at look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Nobody's doing anything. It's not really hard to stand out when nobody's doing anything. They're not doing nothing. Nobody's fighting. Nobody's taking a stand. Nobody's doing anything whatsoever. And so here's this one guy, messed up, flawed, okay, sullen, self-absorbed. But you know what he does? He does something, okay? It's, it's not hard to stand out when nobody else of your generation is standing out. And, and, and so he, he, he starts just fighting. I mean, maybe for all the wrong reasons, but he's at least doing something. He's at least fighting. He's trying and so, so here's Samson, and, and, and he's fighting, and, and you remember what happened, look in Judges chapter 15, verse 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah went up to the top of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Knowest thou not that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this that thou hast done unto us? And he said unto them, As they did unto me, have I done unto you? I mean, unbelievable. Look with me in verse number 12. And they said unto him, We are come down to bind thee, that we may deliver thee into the hand of the Philistines. And Samson said unto them, Swear unto me that you will not fall upon me yourself. Samson is fighting their enemy. And 3,000 of the men of Judah come to him and say, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why? Do you know what you've done for us? You've caused us a lot of trouble. I mean, <clears throat> listen, we were, <clears throat> we were getting along well. We were blending fine. There were no battles. We were living and let live. We were coexisting. 
I mean, we were hand in hand with, with the enemy around us. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, you've now come, and you've, you've stirred things up, and now they're after us. Let me tell you why we're here, Samson. We're going to bind you, and we're going to deliver you. And Samson said, oh, I can handle them. You just make sure you don't fall on me yourself. And so they made that deal. You, you know, when I read that, you know what I thought? Good night. With friends like that, who needs enemies? You know what I'm saying? I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You're, you're going to turn me in to the very people that, that are your enemies. And, and, and here's the deal. Look at me. You call Samson anything you want to call him, but you cannot call him a coward. You can call him self-absorbed. You call him, you call him narcissistic. Help yourself. You call him prideful. Call him arrogant. Call him carnal. There's a lot of things you can tag on to this guy. But the one thing he dead sure it, and he's not Pee Wee Herman. He's John Wayne. Okay? I mean, this isn't Woody Allen. No, this is Clint Eastwood. Okay? He, he, he's coming in. He's coming in just looking you straight in the eye and saying, let's go. And, and, and so you can call him whatever you want to call him, but you can't call him a coward. And, 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 and now he's confronted by 3,000 cowards up on a mountain. And, and, and yes, he's a loner. And yes, he's self-absorbed. And with all of his failures and all of his flaws, at least he did something to confront the enemy that God said nobody else is crying out about. You see, after he slew... A thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. You know what he did? He, he said, um, I'm thirsty. God, could you give me water? Well, why would God answer the prayer for water of a guy like that? I'll tell you exactly why. Nobody else was asking God for anything. For 40 years, nobody did anything to free the nation of Israel. And though Samson's motives may have been wrong, though he was a mess, I'm going to tell you, you're going to find out that he stood out in a generation of do-nothing people that were cowards and were unwilling to take a stand against the enemy of their day. And so God said, I don't have anybody to choose from that generation. This guy at least stood for something. Number two, let me say this to you. Why is he here? Why is he, why, is he, why is he in the hall of faith? Well, he's here in spite of his failures and his flaws. Now, let's just do this for a moment, okay? Let, let's, in order to be fair about this, here's what we got to do. You can't, you can't just walk past. You've you got to read everything, okay? So we walk past Abraham and say, dude, there's Abe. You know, we, we, walk past, uh, we, we walk past some of these people, and David, there's David. Man, David, remember David killed Goliath. And, and we, we, we walk past these bronze busts, and Jacob and Moses and Joshua, and we look at them and we say, whoa, are you, can you believe that? If you ever go with my wife to a museum, she got something from her dad, my father-in-law that I love very deeply. He's in heaven now. And I have no doubt in heaven he's reading every sign that's there about any possible thing. We'd be riding down the road. There'd be a, there'd be a you know, historic marker here. No, you ain't passing the historic marker. He pulls over and reads the sign. Okay, that's it. If you go in a museum with Susie, the one thing that Susie's going to do, she's going to read everything. I mean, and she's, her, her, her ability to retain is incredible. 
And, and, and so she reads every single bit of everything. And so then when we leave the museum, she, look, this is true, and I'm not exaggerating. I took her to Norman Rockwell's museum in, in, oh, uh, in uh, Connecticut or wherever. I, I took them, or Vermont. I took her there. This is the honor. She was telling the guides things about Norman Rockwell. I mean, they would just stand there. She said, see that guy right there in the picture? That's his neighbor, Frank, who has a poodle that has mange. And he put him to sleep two weeks before this picture was taken. I mean, it's unbelievable stuff she's sharing with these, these people. So as, we, as we're going through the Hall of Faith, we say, hey, there's Abraham. No, 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 not so fast. Read the whole thing. Re read, the, read the entire story because, yeah, there's Noah. We bump into Noah. Can you remember the fact that not only did Noah build the ark by faith, but he got drunk and passed out in his tent after the flood was over? Well, there's Abraham and Sarah. Wow. Yeah, but what about their flight into Egypt? They ran from a lack of faith in God. They went to Egypt to find sustenance because they didn't believe God could give them sustenance there where they were at. And they took Hagar uh, to be his wife. And because of Sarah's lack of faith, she gave Hagar to Abraham. Boy, what a look as the stomach churns. I mean, this is a, this is a perfect, you know, soap opera. And, and, and so Abraham has Ishmael with the servant girl, Hagar, and, and twice, Abraham, twice Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife. And Sarah straight up herself lied to God and said, I, 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 I don't know who you think it laughed. I didn't laugh. No, no, you're talking to God. God knew. Well, she, she, she tells a lot. Jacob, we find Jacob. He made a fine art of deception. His family was dysfunctional. His kids murdered an entire village. Uh, to avenge their sister Dinah, and all he could care about was how it made his reputation stink in the area. Moses, in anger, smote the rock twice and was denied entrance into the Holy Land. Joshua allowed an entire generation to come up behind his that did not know the Lord. Rahab, who's identified as the harlot. By the way, in most Baptist churches, just because of her background, she wouldn't have been allowed to do anything of any worthwhile service. Well, we know she's sincere, but we also know what she was. Well, you know what? God can change anybody from what they were to what he wants them to be. And the only place in God's work that your past is held against you is in the house of Pharisees. It's the only place. Gideon, yeah, he won a great victory, but his legacy includes allowing his tribe to turn the ephod into an idol. It didn't end so well. Barak didn't have enough faith in God to go to battle without Deborah by his side. I mean, good night. You're the soldier. Jephthah, the impulsive son of a harlot who made a rash vow that, that either cost his daughter her life or her, exiled her to loneliness. David, whose failure with Bathsheba scandalized Israel and whose disobedience in numbering the people cost 70,000 lives, Samson, who appointed his carnal sons to positions of leadership. So once you get below the surface here, things don't look as above board as you might expect them to. And you realize, you know what? 
maybe this should be called the hall of failure rather than the hall of faith. So why are these, look at me, why are these flawed, failing people in this notable hall of faith? Because that's the only kind of people there is. Again, South Georgia, there ain't no other. Ain't, ain't nobody else. You, you know, do you know this? Do you know that the only people that God can use are failed, flawed people? Because that's what we all are. We've all failed. And, and look at me. If everybody could stop and read every word of your life, You'd be failed too. You'd be flawed too. You'd have things you wouldn't want read either. You see. And, and so the reality of the matter is, is, is there are no other kind of people. You know, you know, when I came to Idaho 16 years ago, the one thing I loved is I, of course I love the area, but, 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 but I love the boys that played on the blue. Give me Chris Peterson every day, all day. I mean, when I was living in Georgia, I said, that guy right there, there's not a better coach in the nation than that guy right there. You know why? Because he takes Class B players and beats Class A teams. Right. Men alive, when he beat Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl, I was speaking in Oklahoma City. That was on, that was on a Saturday, I think, or, Friday. I was, or, or Monday. I, I don't know. But right after that, I was speaking in, at a conference in Oklahoma City, and I wore my Boise State tie. <laughs> and the guy got mad and said, he's a Georgia Bulldog fan. I said, not now, baby. I'm wearing the blue, son. I like it, you know. I, I admire somebody that, 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 that can do what he did. You know what God does? God takes plan B people, class B people, and he uses them to do his class A work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world... And, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. If you took a consensus of pastors around the nation that are Baptist men, and you asked them who's the greatest preacher that ever lived, many people would say Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He pastored the great Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London, England. I've been there I've visited there. I've read his life story. I've, I've read his commentaries. Chad and I were just talking about him the other day. He's a man of incredible eloquence. Did you, know, did you know that when he was 22 years old, he pastored one of the great churches in the nation, and somebody was playing a prank and yelled fire, and, and people were trampled to death, and, and his wife said he never fully recovered from that. At the age of 39, he started suffering from from, from uh, uh, Bright's disease and gout, and he was in so much pain perpetually that there were times he couldn't hardly get out of bed. And his wife wrote these words down, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. And yet he's known today as the prince of preachers. You know what God doesn't build with? He doesn't build with grade-A lumber because there is none. There's just none. And if you may sit here today and think that God can't use you, can I, can I encourage you by telling you that God's been in the recycling business for many, many years? 
And no matter what you've done, God can get over that and get you over that and get you beyond that and use you in a great way. Can I say, third of all, the reason he's in the hall of faith is because God measures faith differently than you and I do. When we talk about faith, here's what we talk about. He lived a life of faith. Wait a minute. Nobody lives a life of faith. In fact, what you're going to find here are people that did not live lives of faith. You know what they lived? You know what's recorded in Hebrews chapter 11? Instances. Read the chapter. It's, it's, not, it's not a lie. Abraham was, from beginning to end, Abraham was faithful. No, no. No, but there were instances that, that his faith came to the forefront. I mean, I mean, look at Moses. Moses fighting and mad and busting up the tablets and smiting the rock twice and and yet there were times when he chose to suffer affliction with the people of god rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season abraham wasn't always faithful none of them were these are people that failed more than once in their life but then in another instance they were found faithful and by the way listen to me carefully listen faith oftentimes followed the failure a lot of times you find them failing and then you find them faithful don't allow the failures of your past to paralyze your faith for today preacher i failed yeah but wait a minute there's another instance coming your way well wait a minute i i i just messed up okay all right okay wait a minute get right where you messed up but remember this god's not through with you There's another instance of faith where you can shine for God that's coming around the corner. None of us have an aura of faith over our entire life. We struggle and we fail, but every situation is an opportunity for us to show faith in that instance. You remember the dad that came to Jesus and said, man, my son's in trouble. I need need help. Mark chapter 9. He said, I need help. Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Well, what's the daddy going to say to that? Jesus said, you got faith? If you got faith, everything's possible to those that have faith. What's the daddy going to say? Whose boy is broken and, 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 and messed up by Satan. What's the dad going to say back? And the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Now here's the truth of it all. You and I are strange mixtures of doubt and faith, of failure and success, of stepping out for God and turning around and walking away from God. And we can sit here in our phylacteries and pharisaical robes and we can, we can stick our nose in the air and act like we're something we're not, but the reality of the matter is South Valley Baptist Church is a hospital filled with sinners that come every Sunday and get together, try to encourage each other and get over our failings and our falterings and our, and our flaws. That's who we are. That's what, that's what, we're, that's what we're made of. We're, we're, we're like that man. We're, we're like the guy that says, yes, Lord, I believe but then help thou my unbelief. I, 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 yes, I believe you. But boy, doubt just keeps coming up. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus said to his disciples, Why are ye 
fearful, O ye of little faith. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? O ye of what? Little faith. You know what happens next? And then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Oh, wow. Mark chapter 14, a couple of chapters later, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught Peter, caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? But you know where Peter wound up? Back in the dry boat, not drowning in the middle of the sea. In both of these instances, Jesus pointed out the fact that their faith had failed, but they got the answer to their prayer anyhow. O ye of little faith, and he calms the storm. What's wrong with your faith, Peter? Get in the boat. So God knows our, our flaws, and he allows storms to come into our life sometimes that increase our faith. And, and, and by the way, if, you've never been, if, if we were never challenged by circumstances that are bigger than we are, then our faith, our faith remains dormant. It's in the instances, listen, remember? Remember Hebrews 11. It's a, it's, it's a story of people who have instances of faith interspersed in a flawed, weak, frail, failing life. Did God say, see that boy right there? Yeah, he got, he's got some, he got some problems in his life. But let me tell you about the time. Let me, let me tell you about the time that he chose me instead of Egypt. Let me tell you about the time that I was able to give him a son because even with their failing, they messed up with Hagar and Ishmael, but they still got Isaac. Look at me. You may think that you have nothing to offer God. Can I tell you, you're amongst a group of people, every one of which failed, every one of which was flawed. Now let me close with this, because this is important, and I'll, I'll tie a knot in this. Let me tell you who the real hero of faith is in Hebrews chapter 11. Here, here, here's what we think. We, we walk down here and we, we say... Um, uh, you know, th these are great people doing great things for God through great acts of faith, okay? And we're, we're looking at Abraham, dude. Jacob, son. And we're looking at all these people. Moses, the lawgiver. A and we leave the hall of faith thinking these are great people that did great things through great faith. And that's, that's not it at all. They've all... They're all blemished. They've all got a bad rap sheet. They were far from perfect. But there were instances when they really stood out in their day. Just like the guy who we have stepped back, jaw dropped, and said, Are you kidding me, Samson? Are you doing that again? Really? And yet Hebrews 11, there he is. Why? Because Hebrews 11 really isn't about great people who do great things for a great God through great faith. Hebrews 11 is about a great God who uses flawed people to do great things through instances of their faith.
Don't you walk out and close the door behind you and walk away stunned at the people we reap. Walk away stunned that there is a God so great that he can use a harlot, that he can use a Jephthah. A man, a man as self-absorbed as Samson, there's a God great enough to even use Samson. Look at what they did. If, if you'll read from verse 32 down, we're not going to do that today, but look at me. If you'll read it, look at what they did. You know what they did? They turned to flight armies of aliens. You know what they did? They stopped the mouths of lions. You know what they did? They quenched, they quenched the fire. They quenched the they quenched the flame. You know what they did? They, they were sawn asunder. They were tortured. They lived in, in dens and caves of the earth. They were destitute. They were homeless. They were hunted. They were hounded. And yet they kept their faith. Now you look me in the face. There ain't no man on earth or woman on earth that can do that without a great God. This chapter is not about men. It's about the grace of a great God. That God can pick up your falterings and your flaws and your failures and he can put the puzzle back together again. And if you're here today and your life is scarred and, 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 and you're, you're, you, you've got, uh, you've got uh, a past that you are not proud of and and, and, and you, you've, got, you've got blemishes and scars and, and pain in your life. Can I tell you, welcome to the fraternity of the forgiven. That's who we are. That's who we are. Every person in the hall of faith was there for one reason. Him. A great God that took flawed people to do great things in spite of their weakness. Let's bow our heads, could we? Well, Samson doesn't deserve to be there. <laughs> he didn't. But God... Ishmael, the world reels from that decision, doesn't it? Even today. Well, that ought to in and of itself exclude Abraham and Sarah. It was Sarah's idea. It was Abraham's deed. Look at world history. Yeah, but God. Pastor, I don't think God could use me. Well, you don't know God. But God. Well, I'm flawed, and I failed, and I'm scarred. Well, that, that makes you a candidate. People that recognize their failings and their flaws and their scars, that doesn't exclude you, that includes you. So if you're here today and say, I don't, I, don't, I don't think God can use me. Well, yeah, great. You're one of the ones that God can use. Father, thank you 
for being so great that you see beyond our past, our failures, our flaws, and even our faltering faith, and you exhibit your greatness and that you use us. Help us, I pray, dear God. Help us, I pray, to never hold on to the excuse or to never think that it's our skill set that, ma skill set that matters. Help us to realize that it's in the greatness of who you are that we can do anything, accomplish anything that we can. Bless us, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.